Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Philip Terzian here, Literary Editor of the Weekly Standard, with our weekly podcast of the Books and Arts section for the June 16th issue of the Weekly Standard. As usual, a selection that I hope, in fact, I think will be of interest to readers, which starts with a splendid essay on someone you may or may not know about, but is well worth reading about, and that is the son, the oldest son of Queen Victoria of England. Um, He was not the oldest child of Queen Victoria. Victoria's oldest child was her daughter, also called Victoria, who married the later emperor of Prussia, and in fact was the mother of, in turn, of Kaiser Wilhelm II of World War I fame. But that's we're going beyond our subject here. This is a biography of Edward VII, uh, who was king uh, after Victoria, succeeded her in 1901. The book is called The Heir Apparent, A Life of Edward VII, The Playboy Prince, and the author is Jane Ridley. It's a British book um, about an English king, but of interest to Americans for a number of reasons. Um, for one thing, Edward is himself, in, at least in my view, an endlessly fascinating character. He was the son, of course, as I say, of, of Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert, uh, who was a German, and she and her husband, the consort, Prince Albert, um, did everything they could to make uh, Bertie, or which was his nickname, actually, his name was Albert, um, even though he came to the throne as King Edward, he was known to his family as Bertie. Uh, nevertheless, they did everything they could to make uh, Bertie the model Victorian monarch. With He was surrounded by tutors and high-mindedness and his father's uh, sense of uh, Teutonic seriousness and his mother's um, eponymous sense of Victorian rectitude. And the wonderful thing about Prince Bertie is that none of it really took with him. He never became a very studious person. He wasn't much of an intellectual. Um, And he tended to take his royal duties, I don't want to say lightly, but his approach to life was very different from his mother's. And as it happens, um, while he was a disappointment to his parents in that sense, he was nevertheless an excellent monarch, an almost perfect constitutional monarch, a man of of considerable uh, wisdom and good uh, sense, and a man almost without uh, racial or religious pre- uh, prejudice in a time when that was uh, especially unusual, and a man with an acute uh, knowledge, uh, an intimate knowledge of European diplomacy, rather like his, I guess his what, great-granddaughter, Queen Elizabeth II. He had been around long enough that that um, even if he hadn't tried very hard, he certainly knew uh, uh, much and put it to good use while he was king. He died a little prematurely. He died in 1910 at the age of 69 after a life of uh, good fun and good food and probably a little more uh, wine, women, and song that was good for him. But uh, the Edwardian age, which is named for him, was a pleasant and in many ways uh, salutary um, interlude after the Victorian age and right before the onslaught of the First World War, which uh, whether that could have been prevented by Edward's being on the throne is unlikely, but 
in any event, it, it certainly marked the end of the, the Edwardian age. But a wonderful uh, subject and a great essay by Edward Short on this book, which sounds like an excellent biography and a good introduction to the subject. This is followed by a piece by our own Kelly Jane Torrance of a slight book, which this time of year is probably of particular use to readers, and that's The Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead, Do's and Don'ts of Right Behavior, Tough Thinking, Clear Writing, and Living a Good Life by Charles Murray. Charles Murray is, of course, well-known social scientist at the American Enterprise Institute, who is usually writing on rather more uh, serious or, at any rate, topical uh, subjects. Uh, but in this case, it's a a little volume with some advice for the recent, essentially, I would say, for the recent graduate. This is not a book for every young person. It's not a book for anyone over a certain age, but for someone in their early 20s who is uh, finishing up their education or is in the midst of their education and is uh, wants to uh, has perhaps taken their first job and wants to get a foothold in life, it's a series of, it's it's both a it's a serious work in some regards because the, the advice that he offers is not meant lightly, but it's done with a light touch and with a sense of humor, um, both practical and philosophical. And I recently read, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I read that the book that is most frequently given to college graduates as a graduation present is Oh, the Places You'll See... Uh, by Dr. Seuss, or maybe it's Oh, the Things You'll Do, one or the other. But it's some Dr. Seuss book, which, uh, frankly, it's hard to imagine that adults would give young adults a book like that after uh, graduating from college. But my recommendation would be, if you're looking for something to give to someone who has just graduated um, and is starting out in life and uh, is taking the first... Uh, uh, modest footstep toward their career that that this new book from Charles Murray, The Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead from Crown Business, would be an excellent and very valuable uh, present and probably one that might actually work because it's it's a relatively it's a relatively short book, 144 pages, uh, fun to read but um, useful to absorb. This is followed by a uh, a very fine essay by our own Joseph Epstein about a person he calls the greatest literary critic of the 20th century, Eric Auerbach, whose name is not uh, a household name. Of course, there aren't too many literary critics, I suppose, whose names are familiar to most readers. But Auerbach uh, was a German Jew who had to leave Germany inevitably in 1933 and who spent a few years abroad and then came uh, to the United States um, uh, after World War II and um, ended up at, um, at uh, I think he went first to Penn State and then was at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton and then spent the balance of his career uh, at Yale. He died in 1957 and is best known uh, for his masterwork, which was um, published in the late 40s, entitled Mimesis, the Representation of Reality in Western Literature. What's interesting about this review is Epstein's ability to describe 
what it is that Auerbach tried to do as a critic and literary historian. Um, literary criticism is not just a question of telling you what's worth reading and what isn't. It's telling you also what writers are trying to do and whether they succeed in doing it and how in the doing they demonstrate the artistry that separates them from other writers. Uh, it's what uh, it's the it's the element of genius that separates a, a Flannery O'Connor from a Harper Lee or a William Faulkner from a John Steinbeck. Uh, and if you have a sense after reading Steinbeck or Harper Lee that these are popular novels, but probably not art in the same category as as Faulkner uh, or someone like that uh, or Flannery O'Connor. Um, Auerbach helps you to understand why that is and how that is. Um, what he has written is a review of a new book from the Princeton University Press, which is an anthology of Auerbach's essays, probably as good an introduction as you need to his work entitled Time, History, and Literature, Selected Essays of Eric Auerbach. If, you're, if your graduate um, is, uh, was an English major or perhaps a philosophy major and you don't want to give them the Charles Murray volume, the Auerbach, this Auerbach volume would be a real compliment to the graduate. Um, one more piece, um, one more review this week is a biography um, um, actually, excuse me, not a biography, but a collection of letters um, edited by Margaret Hogan and James Taylor and published by the Belknap Press, which is an imprint of the Harvard University Press. But it's a selection of letters uh, written by Louisa Catherine Adams, who is uh, the wife not of John Adams, President John Adams, but of their, her son, his son, John Quincy Adams, Louisa Catherine Adams is Mrs. John Quincy Adams. And Abigail Adams, who is an interesting and fascinating person, of course her marriage to John is of almost endless fascination to, to American history buffs, um, is, a, is interesting in her own right and for many reasons. But Louisa Catherine Adams, in my view, comes across as not only a rather more cosmopolitan figure, since she accompanied her husband, John Quincy, on his many uh, global missions to St. Petersburg, Paris, London, and other places. Uh, she not only led a somewhat more picturesque life, but is, if I may say, a somewhat more um, amenable human being, a little bit, someone you'd probably rather um, uh, uh, sit next to as a dinner guest than uh, either... Uh, either uh, John Adams or Abigail Adams. Louisa Catherine Adams um, survived her husband for a few years, um, died a much-beloved widow of, of the president and later congressman. But this book um, does her a bit of belated justice in that the publication of her letters shows a real wide-ranging mind, a, a deep intellect, and broad experience, which, of course, was denied to so many uh, women of that era and um, enjoyed really only by very few, and of those generally ones of the blood royal, as, as Louisa Catherine Adams was. But I don't mean to 
diminish her accomplishment at all. It's a it's a it's a fascinating book. And Edward Acorn, who has written for us many times before on American history, is an Adams um, family buff, knows very much what he's talking about, and gives it, as they used to say, uh, two thumbs up. So. Um, this book, which is entitled um, A Traveled First Lady, Writings of Louisa Catherine Adams from the Belknap Press, I recommend highly. John Podhoritz's film review this week is a review of A Million Ways to Die in the West, which is the new uh, uh, sort of comedy western from Seth MacFarlane, the, the fellow behind uh, The Family Guy and other popular cartoons, and I guess he was the host of the um, Academy Awards, either this season or last. John's point is an interesting one. Um, I, I'm always, um, I'm interested to know what John thinks about films, but even more interested to know how how he arrives at his conclusions. And he talks about this film as uh, it's it's in effect a recreation of um, a very popular um, movie of 40 years ago called Blazing Saddles, which I'm sure many, if not all of you, remember. And of course, Blazing Saddles was a spoof of Westerns. It took the conventions of of Westerns. This was in the mid-1970s at a time when all such things were under assault in the culture, and it, and it turned them upside down, turned them on their head, made light of things that had otherwise hitherto been taken deadly seriously. It introduced various levels of humor into the Western genre, which was considered the preternatural, the, the, the quintessence of American uh, cinema, and turned it on its head. And of course, now we have, 40 years later, a spoof of a spoof. It's a kind of endless succession. And and John wonders whether at one po at what point do we recognize that the the process of parodying other parodies has got to have diminishing returns at some point and that what a million ways to die in the west thinks is terribly funny was actually thought of and executed perhaps more skillfully uh, in the past it also involves one of those cases very familiar in hollywood where everybody it's said obviously in the late 19th century and everyone has a late 19th century sensibility, except Seth MacFarlane and, I guess, one other character, um, both of whom have very 21st century sensibilities. So we're reminded at every juncture that while those 1875 characters are laughable beyond description, Seth and his friend remain pretty cool in the eyes of um, the filmmakers, uh, one of whom, of course, happens to be Seth MacFarlane. So John very nicely deconstructs the formula and prompts me, as always, uh, I'm not a Seth MacFarlane fan, and nor am I particularly a fan of Westerns, but I would be very interested to see how this plays out and really want to go see it, thanks to John's review, and I hope you have the same reaction I have. In any case, I thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to talking to you about next week's Books and Arts section sometime next week. Thanks again.